You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and this week we are once again heading to the waterfront because uh, it's summer, and why the heck not, right? Everyone loves the ocean. Previously, I interviewed the head of the New York Aquarium. I interviewed a tugboat pilot, and after all that, I, I kind of got hungry. I was just like, I, I wanted seafood, <laughs> and so I was sort of sitting around. It's like, you know, what's like an iconic bit of New York City seafood? Oysters. Oysters actually built New York City. The the oyster trade was a huge part of this city's origins. And so I I went looking around to find some oyster farmers because I just thought that would be an interesting and fascinating job, seeing what it's like to raise bivalves. Eventually, I found Mike and Isabel Osinski, who run Widow's Hole Oyster Farm off in Greenport, New York. It's, It's sort of at the very far end of the North Fork. If you just take the train as far as you can into Long Island, you will eventually get there in a very, very beautiful little patch of the bay. The two of them used to write software for Wall Street uh, in their last career. And once they got done with that, they said, uh, screw it, we're going to raise shellfish. And I talked to them about that while sitting on their lovely porch and while sampling some of some of those oysters. It was great. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. What are your names, and what do you do? I'm Isabel Osinski, and I'm an oyster farmer. I'm Michael Osinski, and I'm an oyster farmer. I'm uh, married to Isabel Osinski. And uh, tell me about your oyster farm. Well, we have the Widow's Hole Oyster Farm in Greenport, New York, which 100 years ago was the oyster capital of New York. And uh, you know, we came out here, and uh, we bought a summer house. And we had a software business in New York that we sold, and we retired, and we discovered we owned five acres underwater by accident, and we decided it would be a good place to raise kids out on an oyster farm. And we now farm for 20 years now, or almost 20 years, 18 years, we farm oysters and bring them in mostly into Manhattan. Is five acres like a lot? It's enough to grow several million if, you know, we, we only use, you can see here, five acres we only use an acre of our five, probably less, half an acre. It's enough. It's plenty. enough. Yeah. Plus, we have a creek. So you guys are sort of like a boutique oyster farm, would you say? Exactly. Or where do you? Where in the range of oyster farming would you say you fall? High end. High end. Yeah. High, High end, end restaurants. Mom and pop boutique. High end mom. Right. Family, actually, family farm where kids work. Yeah. yeah, our kids have grown up here, and yeah, they're off both in the university now. Of course, we'll we'll plug them. We got a daughter who's a senior at Cornell who wants to take over the oyster farm, Susanna, and we have a son that's a uh, will be a uh, sophomore at Yale as as an engineering student who designed a lot of the system. You see this cushy system that's behind you here. Oh, really? Yes. It's just like a, a fun project for himself, or um, we told him we couldn't go leave until he figured out how the two of us could manage without him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we raised you, we sent you to Yale, yeah. this, uh, you're paying us back. Yeah. <laughs> Take care of it. And this system does reduce our labor by about 75%. It's quite ingenious. Oh, wow. Oh, okay, we're definitely going to talk about that. Out of curiosity, what restaurants do you sell to? 11 Madison Park in the city is our biggest client. Uh, we sell to Le Bernardin. We've sold to Le Bernardin for almost 20 years. He was one of our first clients. Eric Repair, we sell to... Blue Hill at Stone Barns buys oysters from us. We grow a special five-year-old oyster for uh, Dan Barber, Chef Dan Barber. We sell to Frenchette, which was named the best restaurant of the year last year, 2018. Uh, Riyadh Nasser and uh, Lee Hansen are great guys. Anita Lowe, we sell to her. Yeah, I mean, we sell to her for special events. She's also 
world-renowned chef. So you're chef. telling me some small, obscure restaurants no one's ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> well, we sold those too. <laughs> yeah. We'll sell to anybody. You found you had this underwater real estate, but what made you decide to actually start raising oysters? Well, we had two little kids. We knew that this village had been the oyster capital of New York. No one was growing oysters, and you know we'd had a successful business on Wall Street. And did we want to go back and uh, you know write more software, or you know, or raise our kids in the city life? And the, you know, this whole raising kids in the city has got a nutty sort of atmosphere to it. It's very strange. For example. When we were still in the city, our daughter was two and she was ready for nursery school. So we went to the local nursery, hoity-toity nursery school, open house. And, you know, Susan Sarandon's daughter went there and was like, wow, what's so good about this place? And, oh, the mother said, this is a great school. I said, well, what exactly do you like? She said, they really prepare your child for their kindergarten interview. And I thought, you know, that is so stupid. And I'm sorry, but that is, and that's what the whole school raising kids in New York City is about. I grew up you in know. New York, and I had a kindergarten interview. Right, <laughs> it's, it's insane. And, so, you did, and you did very well. I'm yeah. Sure. yeah, I mean, you know, they have you play at the blocks and draw some pictures yeah. and try to figure out if you're going to go to the Ivy League from that. <laughs> but our kids were driving boats when they were three. I mean, it's hard to believe when I see little kids, but our kids were driving a boat when they were three. They were cranking cages, four years and we, old. We drilled them. Yeah, you missed the cage. Now we got to go back. And yeah, you missed that boy. 15 minutes. Wait, wait. You had the kids standing dri- on milk crates okay. so they could see over the oyster cages and driving. And we would we would then use the the boat hook to grab the buoy, you know, lift it up and hoist it into the boat because that requires a lot of effort, yeah. strength. But a kid can drive a boat on a tiller, <laughs> and they could do it. Is that OSHA? Like, is that, uh, is that, no, no. Our lawyer, from when we got the buyout, our buyout lawyer told us, he came here to visit, and we told him we are starting a farm, and he said, you know, family farms are exempt from child labor laws. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Okay. I cannot imagine anyone would have allowed me to drive a boat or anything at age three. I had a power wheel, and I was enough of a menace on I'm that. I'm a little shocked because we get... Um, people come here for tours and the little kids are running around and I'm like I cannot believe we let our kids and then on top of it (laughs) and then on top of it all we'd like get really really mad like you 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 know because they screwed up (laughs) like they missed the buoy and they'd have we'd have to circle back yeah I'm like, you know, we're going to have to be out of here another 15 minutes because of you. But, but <laughs> kids working in the mine. <laughs> well, it, was, it was so cold, you know, like yeah. you're like, don't miss it next time. But <laughs> the farm, the some, you know, family farm is the smallest minority in the country. Less than 1% of people grow up on farms. And the farm experience, you're always having to figure out something. Well, number one, you have to contend with nature. And you know, sometimes very violent nature. And you're always having to build things and rig things and and how yeah. to fix things it, it, it is an ex, you know it is an education in itself is to grow up on a farm yeah do you think that's part of why your son's now becoming an engineer without a doubt I yeah. mean, he was a born that child was a born engineer <laughs> he used to cannibalize all of isabel's like kitchen equipment you know where's my mixer mixer he'd take Where? the mixers and use the engines and like I had a nice water bottle that I was very proud of. He turned it into a gas tank. He built this scooter. He took this scooter like, and know, motorized my it. My Patagonia water bottle. <laughs> it's now a gas tank. <laughs> can you really be mad at him for that, though? I don't think you at can. The t- at the time, I was. Like, once I turned on the light and the whole thing exploded because he'd cut the cord. This is when he was like one or two. Yeah. He'd cut the cord to see where the electric was. 
We just like to figure out, oh, yeah. When it was plugged in, <laughs> yeah. right? So we're, all of a sudden there's like sparks, stuff like that. And our daughter, we're sort of shocked that she's going to be a senior yeah. and uh, she's studying biology. She wants to take over the farm. And we thought, oh, man, she'd want to get out of here. All the work she, we made her do. And no, she lo- she wants to come back. I mean, she knows. I mean, does anybody know oyster farming better than our daughter? I don't think so. I mean, she's actually her entire life. Biology degree probably helps yeah, with that, too. That's right. Yeah, it's going to help. Well, she's also learning farm management. <laughs> so she comes back and manages us. Yeah. So you're finally you're gonna have a professional. Is yeah, professional well, managing. She's very good at managing us. She's like very subtle, you know. Like she's after being yelled at over the buoys all those years. Yeah. She knows. But she's yeah, she's, she's gonna be able to turn the table. That's, oh yeah, it's already happened. Are you yeah. kidding? Yeah, she's already telling us you're gonna yeah. make the delivery this week. I'm like, yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, I've got a job in a hatchery. You know, she's working at a hatchery yeah. this summer over in East Hampton because we want to build a hatchery. You know? Oh yeah. And, is that that's like the big, more like commercial, larger commercial side? Yeah, hatchery. that would. Well, I don't know, just to uh, meet our needs because every hatchery is also in the grow out business, and of course, it's human nature. They're always selling you their runts. They keep the best oysters for themselves. Uh, the fastest growers, they grow those out, and the ones that are slower growers or they're, they're smaller animals, they sell to you. I mean, that's human nature. Where does the process of raising an oyster start. I, I have no concept of this. Like, where, what, what is step one for, for bringing an oyster to life? You uh, spawn the oysters and have make a set. Then you collect the babies and um, grow them in nursery systems, in a hatchery or a nursery system. And after about, what, six months in the nursery system, mm-hmm. they uh, become large enough so we can put them out into the water. And then every three to six months, at least probably more when they're young at least every two weeks when they're young we tend them sort them tend them clean them then we overwinter them so where when you say you're spawning where is that what does that mean what are you guys doing when you're spawning oysters actually we do not capture our own set we buy oysters seed at the size of one millimeter that's the size of a grain of sand from hatcheries that do spawn the oyster Okay. And what they do is they bring in, you know, a couple dozen nice-looking oysters, uh, judging by the thickness of the shell and the shape mm-hmm. and the rapidity of their growth. Bring them indoors in the winter in January. Pump in water in an aquarium-like setting. Pump in water, which they raise up to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and that'll cause the oyster to spawn. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they must grow algae to feed both the big breeder oysters mm-hmm. and the microscopic offspring. Yeah. So that's, and they capture those on very fine mesh screens, keep feeding them algae, keep screening them. And once they're at a size that uh, we can handle, one millimeter, which is a very small size. Still. Tiny. Tiny, right? Yeah. Grain of sand. They ship them to us, UPS them, you know, FedEx overnight, and we put them in uh, our nursery system. Our goal is to get them up to, you know, three millimeters that we can get them into little baskets out in the water. Uh, so you start off with like a, a stud oyster, basically. It's like the, the uh, about a dozen uh, yeah. males and females. Yeah. Of course, you don't know uh, oysters are hermaphroditic; they yeah. change their se- sex during their life. Yeah. And the bad news is, when they're weak, they're males. When they're strong, they're females. What does that mean? It takes more energy to make egg than it takes to make sperm. Okay. So uh, it's healthy harder to be a woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that means. Oysters are a metaphor. Is what you're telling right. me. Oysters are Living. the basis of all life, you know, without a doubt. The basis of all civilization, uh, you know, I would extend that too. And so you get these grain of sand sized spawn and mm-hmm. you take them and you so what what are you doing with them at that point? We put them in these containers that are out right on the uh, big big tank 
and yeah, we pump water nice. in. At that, they release them to us when they know there's enough algae in the seawater. The water is now warm enough, which is mid to end of April. The yeah. water's still pretty cold then, but there's still there's the beginning of the algae bloom. And uh, we'll just pump water through them, can keep them in silos that have a very fine mesh screen on the bottom. They have a one millimeter or a 750 micron mesh. Pump water through them. They'll, you know, takes them about, you know, a month or two to triple. And then they go into the, as fast as we can get them into the ambient bay water in, in containers and keep sorting them and getting them into containers that have larger and larger mesh. That's our goal is to get them. You know, so that by September, October, they're in half-inch mesh that we can then uh, overwinter them through and pick them up in the next year to sell. It's a two-year process to get an oyster to market. It's two years in time. It's that little grain of sand speck. That's how long you're raising it for. That's correct. Some we grow for Dan Barber wants a big six-inch shoe. We grow those for four or five years for Dan. Four or five years. Uh, Also, Riyadh and... uh, Nasser at Frenchette now is serving that big oyster, too. So we grow, we overwinter quite a bit. That's longer than you'll see some livestock, oh, a lot well, of livestock. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the super cow. cow and the super pig, they can get those things to market. A chicken is 10 weeks, right? A, you know, they can get cows and pigs out to five, 600 pounds in 10 months. Yeah. It takes us two years to get an ounce. But ours is good protein. <laughs> Healthy protein. Yeah, so each one of those little guys. No hormones, no antibiotics. So how many how many oysters are you like making in a in a batch? Like, are you raising at a time? We do about three hundred thousand, three to four hundred thousand in a year. Obviously, from the one millimeter seed, we lose a lot to yeah. get to you know from one millimeter to uh, twenty five millimeters, which is an yeah. inch. We'll lose maybe more than half of those but that's how we expect to do that so you're taking hundreds of thousands of these of these little creatures millions millions these little creatures and you're attaching them to mesh to get them into the water not attaching them putting them inside a mesh basket ah inside a mesh basket yes and that's what i'm seeing floating around that's correct so i think we're going to start talking about gear soon because when when i when i came out here i honestly had zero idea of what an oyster farm would look like like it just mm-hmm. i had no concept I, right. there were things in the water somewhere maybe some cages or something and you know if you look out over the water by your dock it's these wooden pylons that are stuck in and then these rows and rows of these black baskets right is this a system you've always used or is this you said your you, your son kind of engineered something new so is this relatively recent yeah the last three or four years we've changed over completely we used to use cages on the bottom the cages had bags in them, and the bags had, you know, rather fine mesh from, you know, 16th of an inch to a half an inch mesh, and we would grow oysters in there. But the problem with that is there are several problems with that. And the major one is fouling. The, the cages are submerged in the water, and when the oysters are growing, everything's growing. Sponges, tunicates, lady slippers, barnacles, oyster drills, all kinds of lower life forms. A lot of people like that system, though, and a lot of people use that system, and they get good results with it. Yeah, that's true. But we found it very labor-intensive. Is it like you're hauling cages up from the bottom? Heavy cages. We also are unique that we're right outside our house, so we we own the bottom, so it's a very unique situation that we could implement the system. Yes, we can grow close to shore. We're the only place, I think, in Suffolk County that can grow so close to shore because because of the oyster, the old oyster industry that preceded us here in Greenport, the entire village was sewered in the 1920s to to make the make sure the water was clean. Suffolk County out here, almost the entire ca- county is on septic tanks, and septic tank leaching, you know, forces most growers to be at least 1,000 feet from shore. 
So you got lucky, and that's we it. got lucky, right? You got lucky. You found that you had five acres of clean water. Yeah, it's very clean water, and uh, of course oh. now we're totally enslaved by that romantic notion of growing oysters. We we work here, you know, twelve months out of the year. We rarely get any time off. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I still want to see if I can get this straight in my head because you've got these baskets out there. How do you actually keep the oysters in the basket when they're so tiny? The smallest size mesh. Yeah. Okay. So you've got you've got ones with like tiny tiny mesh, and as they That's get bigger, correct. they've got larger mesh. Coming we through. go from one point six millimeter mesh to 6-millimeter mesh to 12-millimeter mesh. Ah, I see. 12 millimeters is a half inch. Okay, so as they grow up, they get progressively more like breathing space. Why? They, exactly. They yeah. need more. They'll foul up. The smaller, finer mesh fouls up. You know, if they eat, right, they make waste. So you have to constantly clean those. But they rapidly progress from, you know, we put them in there at 3 millimeters. We want to get them out at 10. And they will, you know, in a month or two, they'll go from 3 millimeters to 10 millimeters. So we'll get them into the six millimeter mesh. Another month there, they go into the twelve millimeter mesh, and then they're—that's where they'll be for the rest of their life. When you're moving an oyster from its first home to its second home, how are you doing that? Like those little guys, like how are you mm. transferring them? Well, we take the baskets off the line, we bring them up to the dock, 
we sort them. We run them through. We have sorters so yeah. that we, while we're while we're handling them, we grade them out by size, and then we uh, put them in uh, the next physically. You know, they come out of the machine and in a bundle, and we put them into the next size up. What does what the machine look like? What is how does that work? It's a vibrating sorter. It's a trembler in French. It's a. It comes from France. It's got. It's a like you. Different size screens that and it shakes so the stuff sorts out. It sounds like they sh- they sort them like like almost like candy or something gets yeah, sorted like like potatoes right? like potatoes yeah. is like France the technological hub for oyster raising or yeah I would say they're they're the kings of this industry by far the French eat twenty five times the oysters that Americans eat the entire Atlantic seaboard of France is planted and farmed oysters they have a mature industry they. Um, have all the machinery that you would need. They have much more machinery than we have, the yeah. average French oyster farmer, because they're heavily subsidized over there. Agriculture is much more heavily subsidized in Europe than it is in the United States. And it's, insured. And insured. Yeah. Crop loss. Which it seems like that's a big deal with oysters. Well, in Europe, they, they have a pernicious disease, a, a herpes virus, that they're losing 60 to 90% of their juvenile crop every year. You don't have to feed them or anything. They just kind no, of live on they one. eat the algae. They eat the algae. Yeah, they're good for the environment because they take excess algae out of, the, out of the water system. So as they're growing, are you tending to them? Are you watching them? Oh, yeah. How, how do you do that? How are you caring for the oysters at that point? Well, we're so technically advanced. We put on our bathing suits and our water shoes and walk out there and <laughs> look, and make sure it looks tidy. If a basket is tangled, two of them become tangled, or they become tangled, we untangle them. Or the ropes are loose and not tight, so we just walk out there and fix them. At the same time, we're harvesting almost all year round. So while we're harvesting, we have a full range of products out there between four and a half years and three months old. So we are always going out and harvesting and selling some. Now we our, our main harvest season, though, by far, it begins in September. That's the classic beginning of the oyster season. That's the first month that has an R in it. And that's the best time, you know, from September through April. That's the classic oyster eating season. And the colder water is the best time. So how deep is that water where they're kind of hanging out? At low tide, it's three to four feet. So you're, that's when you're going and checking them out? That's but, correct. So you're getting your wetsuit or your, or your water shoes on and you're just kind of... It's like it's higher than three feet. It's four feet. Yeah. So you're up to your up to your like chest, chest. in water, and that's you're correct. just kind of walking through the rows of oysters. That's right. That's yep. a daily. That's a daily thing. Sometimes, mul- multiple times. Yeah, <laughs> it could be multiple times in a day. So every day, low tide, or multiple times a day, you're going out there. It's like yeah. almost like a, someone who runs a vineyard is checking out their yeah. their vines or grapes. Very, it sort of does have the look of a vineyard, all the pilings and rope and cabling, right? Doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit similar. Yeah, similar, but yeah. with shellfish. Exactly, shellfish. Vineyard. And you know what? The two classically are eaten together. Right. Yeah. Some Chipotle <laughs> <and> oysters. <laughs> we could we could be growing grapes on those lines. <laughs> you said you're looking to see if they're tidy. What I guess like what exactly are you looking for when you're checking out those those baskets? That they come out of the water properly, the lines are not tangled. Yeah. Fouling is something, if they're not, you know, just general health. Sometimes the purses have, you know, broken parts. Yeah, clip may break. Just like after a storm, you know, there's like. We get big storms here. We get big storms. So they have a lot of action. So you really have to go back. And then you have to make sure that they're going to be able to withstand big storms. We're going to have. You know, everything tight, all of the line. Because once a loose line gets out of everything. You don't want a basket of oysters floating well, it, away. It's a, right. it's the whole line of 
oysters yeah. will go. F- they could get tangled together the, uh, if they're not yeah. tight and then they, ship shape. I, it, it could be a mess. What happens if they get all tangled together? They break loose. They're up on the beach. They could, yeah, they're not hanging properly, so they could unloose from the clip, and then they'd wash up on the shore, which we have retrieved them, right? Uh, at that point, yeah, they're float. They have floats on. So. Yeah, that's sounds like that's one built-in safety mechanism. Yeah, that is that is <laughs> actually yeah. But, but you'd rather with, not have with, them without detached. that. They they would actually fall on the bottom, which is also easy to get anyway yeah but so you have to make sure they're not going to fly away in a storm or so mm. you keep describing fouling that's just oyster waste no it's no? tunicates oh barnacles barnacles lady slippers jingle shells slimy growth seaweed sponges. sponges sponges are very pernicious a lot of sponges we get a wide variety of sponges. What, what do sponges do well, they cover up the shell, they look ugly, they steal nutrient, and there is a type of sponge in the water all along the East Coast called Cleona. The old-timers called it sulfur sponge. It's a microscopic, boring sponge that attacks the shell, burrows into the shell, and lives in the layers. and make the shell so brittle that it's, you know, the, the, the restaurant doesn't want a brittle shell. If it cracks, you know, the restaurants are not after protein. They're, the look on the plate is as important as the protein that you eat. So the beautiful look, our shells are totally free of any fouling. The inner shell, look at it, it's glistening mother of pearl because they have had no predation, no, nothing has attacked that, that animal. So it's a totally healthy, beautiful-looking animal. And that's what you want to see when you're served a dozen oysters. You want to see glistening white inner shells. Healthy. Healthy animal. You're walking through and you're, you're looking for any kind of, kind of parasite or, or other creature that's going to... Well, we know there won't be parasites yeah. in the system because yeah. they air dry every day. We know that. Okay. So you're looking for these other creatures that will come in and possibly go after your oysters. We're looking for the that the gear is properly rigged. Basically, we want to make sure that the system or the you know infrastructure is, is properly designed, set up as it's designed, and then you'll grow a nice and Plus, animal. we're interested in the growth of the oysters. We're looking yeah. at yeah. the oysters and seeing how they're doing. And I mean, you know, for, for God forbid we get the herpes and you walk mm-hmm. out there and see 90% of your crop dead, you know, so. But like, for example, right now, this week, our oysters are going to spawn. This will be the last week we will deliver into Manhattan because after they spawn, we, we you know, They'll lose about 40% of their body mass, and, and the meats will be thin. Huh. So we won't deliver into Manhattan until, you know, end of August, early September. They've fattened up, and they're that same animal, you know, in the fall and winter. is a beautiful, healthy, thick piece of meat, delicious. So we slow down our sales, then, and, and we concentrate on the seed for next year. And is that why it's seasonal? Because you're trying to deliver them before their spawning period? Yeah, yeah. in the but fall. A lot of, most growers out here just sell. Most yeah. people just want to sell the oyster. Yeah, yeah. we prefer to sell it at the right proper time. And we've worked with a lot of chefs in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, they, they want to buy the product at the proper time that it's that it should be sold and should be harvested. You know, all food is seasonal. And, and, and the that great, has gone out of the diet. Yeah, the, the great chefs know that. And the good chefs know that. And more and more people are beginning to realize that there's certain times to eat certain things. It sounds like part of the, the name of the game is that once you have your kind of system rigged up if it's working properly that should keep them healthy that just like if those baskets are cycling and moving correctly through the water mm-hmm. that's what's going to keep am i right to think that it's sort of in our case yes but yes. most people are using the cage system mm. and their key is constant tending if they tend it they'll live they have to take them out of the water and air dry them then they run as them long through as tumbling they, machines to tumble them the key to is the to shank. keep your oyster healthy yeah 
So that, no okay. matter because every site is different. Every site's got different current, different bottom, yeah. different depth. So that, that's interesting. So with cages like you used to have, mm-hmm. you actually have to take the oysters out and throw them in a tumbler. Well, they did. They uh, did. We never did. I never liked the tumbler system because it kills a lot of oysters. Yeah. But you know, to match the demands of the marketplace for the little, smaller, deep cup for oyster. Most have, of the guys out here tumble. Yeah. yeah almost so every all over the co- everybody, all over. Everybody tumbles, what is, even on the west coast. What is tumbling? They put them do? in a drum and it breaks off the growing edge, so it forces them to make a deeper cup. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, a it, big long cylinder that tumbles the oysters. Yeah, and so that because you break off part of the shell, yes. it gets deeper, and that's, that's how you, so you kind of encourage growth with that. Right. Yeah, you you're sculpting, and what's, that's what this system is doing. And so you have a, this system. How does this system accomplish that? Yeah. What is that? Is we just that, we just try to work with the uh, nature. Is, it, tra- is it a trade secret yeah, sort of thing? Yeah. Or, <laughs> I'm asking you to divulge a state yeah. secret. So you guys, you guys have a different system though that kind of does something similar. Yeah, we've done a lot of trial and error, and this is what we've come up with. Is this this is your son kind of helped build? Is this the yeah, the son, yeah. our daughter, everybody yeah. is you know we've known you know because we. I think because we go to the chefs directly, we've gotten feedback over the years, and you know they want this, they want that, and this is one method that we can now. Uh, you guys have figured out how to do it. We think that. so. We've deluded ourselves into that. <laughs> okay. Aside from the daily checks of the oysters and walking through and looking at them, how are you actually spending your time? Would you say what what, what are the tasks that you you know eat up your days? We spend a lot of time tending the the babies, like the nursery system. We just shut it down. We've run this nursery system since, what, April? Yeah, and so we just, everything's now in the water. So However, from April until just now, we, we have a on-land upweller system that yeah. we're growing the babies in, which requires a lot of maintenance. And Daily you got to make cleaning. sure the pumps are running. Because yeah. if you know, they don't go out, we ought to put a, a generator up. So what are you doing to tend it? You're just kind of, you're going and looking at the machinery? Well, no, Sending them out. Raising them out of the tanks. Cleaning, cleaning them. them. You must clean them every day. And then every week you must flush the tank and clean that the tanks out. And so then we thin them out. Yeah, thin them out, grow, grow them in more and more silos. Yeah. Thin them out. So Keep track of their growth. And then migrate them. Then once they're big enough to be sorted out, they go into fine mesh screen into the water. But that... That's what we. That's where we're at now. Everything's in a fine mesh screen. Well, that has to be cleaned, every, you know, twice a week now. Yeah. Even tending though it's in the babies. Tending the seed is, is a, a, is a labor intensive. Is a spring through summer project. And that's and it sort of works out well because we, what we do in early spring is we get all our juveniles up on the lines and let them grow. They're fine once they're up in the purses on the lines. They're fine. Now we tend the seed all summer. We get them big enough to be into purses by the end by August, end of August. Then we switch to harvesting the mature animals that are a year older or a year or two years older and sell those. And the, the rest, the, that's all we do is then harvest until the next spring. Mortality. Color, because you can tell if they're getting too much exposure to the weather by the yeah. color. How long does it take you to figure it out? Do you just like take it? Is it just super quick? You eyeball it at this point? Mm-hmm. You've been doing it so long? Well, they're all graded. You know, obviously, yeah. you know, in a cohort of oysters that you buy, they're, even if you buy one from one hatchery, they're all genetically cousins or brothers and sisters, right? But even amongst them, there's a bell-shaped distribution of growth. So when we first get them and we're sorting the juveniles, say they're one year old, we run them through a sorter machine, we'll get four different grades of sizes. We tag each basket with a, you know, we code them so that we know which size is in which basket. So now as we're going along and looking them, looking at them in low tide, you can see they're tagged, we know the size, and they're all in uniformly grouped by size. 
and we can see, oh, these are ready to go. Oh, these in two more months. Oh, uh, yeah, these you, take you six pretty months. much gauge when, especially Mike, he, he gauges the crop so he can, he does marketing. He's got to match the amount of oysters we have to the amount of sales over a certain amount of time. So he's pretty good at that. Yeah, by we, looking at the call up our clients and say, okay, we're ready to go. Because you don't want to get more clients than you can get through the season. Yeah. And you don't want to end up with extra oysters. So so you guys deal directly with the restaurants. That's correct. Is that common? No. Yeah. How, how does it usually work in the industry? They go to distributors. Yeah. The grower grows, sells his product to a distributor. He keeps it in a cooler and then they go to cities or all over the country and distribute and sell. Yeah, they end up at like the fish market or something like that. Yeah, or They don't know where it ends up. They you don't just, know. The grower give, doesn't know where it they goes. They give it to the distributor. How did you start dealing directly with restaurants? <laughs> well, we had a software business. We used to deal directly with our customers. And being in software, you realize that if you work with the end user, you get a really good idea of, of what they're looking for and their needs. So we, we started talking to the chefs when we first started selling to get an idea of what you know, what they're looking for, and they're very supportive. Our office was on number one, Union Square. And so <clears throat> our software business, and when we entertain clients, we always entertain people at the Union Square Cafe. Yeah. So, you know, after we sold the business, three years later, we had a uh, bunch of oysters to sell. We called up Union Square Cafe, Danny Meyer's place. The chef was uh, Dan was Dan Pollinger, right? Dan Pollinger, he bought a hundred. He said, these are good oysters. I bought a hundred. He called up Tom Colicchio at Gramercy Tavern. He bought 200 and then they then he called... Uh, uh, it's not Dan Pollinger. Ben Pollinger. ben Pollinger. Ben Pollinger. I'm sorry, Correction. Ben. Correction. I'm Pollinger. sorry, Ben. <laughs> My first client, I forgot. His, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then he called up Heffernan at uh, 11 Madison Park. All At that time, Danny Meyer owned all three of those. And yeah. so we had 400 oysters we, we sold. We took them in the back of our Cadillac. <laughs> and by the end of the month, that was all, end of August, by the end of September, we had to buy a van because we were bringing in thousands. But, I mean, they were very supportive. Yes. Because I look back on what we were selling, and it was like, gosh. Yeah. You know, because... They're fouled or very heavy because we were selling giant oysters. Yeah, big that, oysters, right? Because we like we thought everybody should eat big oysters, but yeah. they're very supportive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you guys, so you started off. So selling we had relationships we, with the yeah, chefs, yeah, like that. You knew this is where you had your expense account. You know, That's also, right. And at that point, they're like, okay, well, well, and you turned into a real oyster startup mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, that's basically. Well, I do taste yeah. very. The water here is excellent. I mean, the, the, you had an oyster. They're, they're yeah, no, they're, delicious. That's amazing. Yeah. Greenport world, has world a class. good taste. It's a world-class animal. It truly is. It's right? like I would say it's the best in the world. What is the key to raising a good Is it just the good water? Good spot is, is a lot. It's just the location. And then the how clean and healthy you can keep that animal. Keeping them healthy and clean is, is everything. Well, you can see there's our oysters. We're on the west shore of Greenport yeah. Harbor. On the east shore is that breakwater. What is that? 500 yards, 1,000 yards away, a mile away. Uh, that's open ocean. That's Gardner's Bay. That's, so we get a big tidal flush. And, and the harbor is deep. The middle of the harbor, you see where the ferries are running to Shelter Island, that's 100 feet deep. So there's a huge volume of nutrient-rich water that's coming through here every day. So that's the key. It's just getting the water coming in and coming out. A good flow, a good flush, a good bottom. Those and Greenport has sewage. Yes, yeah. clean. Clean water. So good, clean water flowing in and flowing out. And that's what keeps... Well, we uh, have hard bottom, too. Yeah. Sandy bottom. Sandy, like, sandy cobblestones. Bottom. How, does that, how does that help instead of like mud? Muck. 
Yeah. No muck, no mud. Muck, muck. Because then it tastes like mud. Is that pretty you much? Got it. it. <laughs> if you grow it in mud, it's and it also take... kills them too. Yeah, mud does too. Oh yeah, muck, muck is bad. How does how does the mud kill it? Drown. Can't, stuff, can't, can't feed. Right? Oh, okay. Can't feed. If they fall, yeah. if they're on the bottom, if they're if yeah. the cage grown, the cage will sink. But if it had a mucky bottom, then the then the area the cage is only four or five inches off the bottom. Well, cage will the sink. sediment. And the first, you know, the first foot of water is going to be really and the cage, a lot of sediment. It'll yeah, it'll into sink into it. Yeah. And then you can't pull it out. We've had that problem before. Yeah. You can't yeah. get this cage out. Hard bottom is good. Yeah, so sand, lots of water flowing through it. Mm-hmm. Historically, this area from Riverhead out to Montauk was gridded off in the heyday because it had hard bottom. It was considered prime oyster growing area, which, you know, Mike read, nobody was growing oysters. Like, I think we were one of the first people... Growing oysters yeah. out here. Did you get anybody saying like, was anyone curious about like? Or oh, like, they were all. Yeah. The old timers were like, uh, they were all watching us. Mm-hmm. Every, in fact, I'd have people come up and say, uh, "It's so nice to have the oysters back. We're all watching you." Yeah, the old time green porters were very, very supportive. Now they used to have canneries. It was a huge. Oyster. It was a big industry here, you know, yeah. and and the old timers really remember that it was Greenport was very prosperous. There were people in Greenport in the twenties that own townhouses in London because they exported so many oysters to England. Uh. And people just don't realize what a big industry it was. However, we've had problems, you know, the summer residents, the the New Yorkers who come out here don't want to see you working in their Grundons. There's, there's a real problem with, you know, working on the waterfront. We, we've had to go to court to uphold our right to farm. Cost us, you know, six figures That's to bad. fight the village. That's fascinating. So the village, when you first wanted to do this, said so people sued. No, no, they ignored us because they just thought we were like nutty. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so. then we kept growing, and then we, we were wanted, working all the time. We were working all the time, and then we wanted to build this dock. This big dock, um, and neighbors didn't like. They stood up, and they didn't like really seeing us scene. working in our Grundons. I mean, we enslaved our children. I mean, it was really nasty. They accused you of enslaving your our children. Enslaving. Yeah. Enslaving. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you're describing with the buoy. Yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, yeah. yeah, I guess they must have heard me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the then mayor sided with them, and they put a restriction on our farming activity. And fortunately, in the state of New York, there's a right to farm law. Uh-huh. We went to court, and the court struck down the restrictions. And at the New York village. State Ags and Markets was very supportive. The state of New York. And the state of New York told them, the mayor that if you don't leave these people alone, we're going to sue you. Huh. And so they yeah. backed off. It was so a the, very traumatic experience. That's so interesting to me, though. Because I mean, all your neighbors, yeah. like people that have given canned tomatoes to and pickles, you know, like flowers, they stood up against us. And then the, the odd thing is people that I didn't even know, because yeah. it it's a very small village. We had public hearings, like more than more than any other. Oh, yeah. We had two or three public hearings, which Multiple is unheard, public hearings which is unheard one, of. For one thing, it's unheard of. It's yeah. like uh, no un- one else ever had that in, in the, the state. state of New York. So we had people that I didn't even know that would stand up and say, like you know, would speak up for us. On the other hand, this people that I was so nice to, like even cakes, I'd bake them. You know, those feed them fruit fruit cakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Remember we fed we them for them out years of town. in this We house. want them shut out of here, blah, oh, yeah. blah. So, so they're worried that you guys just being out here raising shellfish is going to bring down their property values? Yes. 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 Because yes. it was like, it was too indu- – because I yeah. look out here and, I, it, like We're I said, really, it looks like a vineyard. You can't even see our neighbors yeah. behind us. It's like from – These kind are of, the people that complain. Can You can't even see them. Can it's, you? So, it, it's so idyllic when you look out at the dock. Like, I mean, I guess back then you had cages, but still – Well, we were working out there on the point. Yeah. We were sorting, but, you know, it's still yeah. – 
I mean, like, because I, I told him, like, how much noise can a, a mom, a dad, and a six-year-old and an eight-year-old make? Yeah. We just, you know, we're just physically unable to work more than four or five hours a day at most. There Little kids been, have to take, I mean, they have to take naps. I mean, they weren't even... <laughs> Anti-Wall Street sentiment. I mean, we we did work on Wall Street, and so there's... There was some I don't know what it was. I have no idea. Yeah, but I was say. talking to some yeah. Australian yeah. muscle growers that sold gear for... Yeah. They were in New Zealand, actually. And they told me that um, muscle farms were 10 miles offshore. And I said, that's really a long ways and a lot of weather, a long commute. Is the water quality? I mean, how bad can the water be? There's no people. And they said uh, people don't like seeing the muscle growers, so they have to go out of sight. Yeah. Huh. And that's in New Zealand, where I think there's what twenty thousand people, and I mean a million they, sheep, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's like it's not a dense. When you think New Zealand, you don't think densely populated. Yeah. So it's everywhere in the world that aquaculture has a hard time sustaining itself because waterfront property owners want to look at kayaks and yachts and sailboats. They don't like seeing people in their grundens and, and dirty boats. That's what they complain about. Our boat is dirty. They said our boat was dirty. Yeah. What is a grunden? Orange. <laughs> Waterproof overalls. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, those things. They're kind of yeah. cute. Yeah, those are like, you see pictures of those all yeah. the time. They're not fashionable, but. Yeah. <laughs> so you had to fight for your right to farm. That's over correct. Here. Yeah. Six figures. Six figures, but you did it. It was bad. We yeah. won. Yeah. We won. We won, and then the village decided it was going to appeal. Fortunately, there was a new mayor elected, and we had the right to sue for damages. So we said, well, drop that right to sue for damages if you uh, don't appeal. And that's how now, but you know, that was 10 years ago. The, the climate has changed. We have, you know, people love oyster farming now. When we started, there was one or two or three oyster farmers. Now there's 93 guys with permits on Long Island to grow oysters. It's a cool thing. Oh, really? Oh, so it's, oh, it's yeah, a, I started, fashionable. I started the Long Island Oyster Growers Association. Are there any others around Greenpoint? Well, you see, see the buoys right there? That's yeah. our neighbor. There, there's another guy around the bend, big oyster farm around the bend here. What is your least favorite part of the process of actually farming the oysters? What's like the worst, dirtiest, least pleasant job? Regulation. I, I would say this herpes thing has been very... It's actually the paperwork. It's the... Well, it's the herp- yeah. this herpes disease and yeah. the, the obliviousness of the government that they are going to allow the import of uh, diseased oysters that kill 60 to 90% of juvenile oysters, and that's being... Is herpes related to human no, herpes No, it's a different... You, oh, people it's don't get it. Yeah. But, but OSHV1, that's the scientific name, which is oyster herpes virus number one, uh, began in 2008 in France. It was first big outbreak. And at that time, because of uh, concerns about norovirus, we didn't allow any European oysters into the country. So from 2008 to 2019, we have not imported oysters from Europe. And they were going to begin the importation again this June, last month. We went to Europe over the winter, our winter break, and it was just rampant. The disease kills 60 to 90% of their oysters. The Dutch uh, were going to bring in container ships full of you know thousands of tons at a time. And they're all infected with herpes. And there's no, we grow a different species on the East Coast, but there's no research to prove if we're uh, resistant or not. And the one researcher who is doing work on it in the University of Virginia said, hey, we're not totally resistant. I need more time and money for research. Catastrophic is the word that most university professors will say that would be catastrophic. 
on especially in the West Coast where they grow the same species, the Crass Austria virginica that the Europeans grow. I mean, it, there's no resistance. The, the, the whole crop would just suffer massive, massive die-offs. And so this is the thing that's this is bothering. Oh, you keep this up at late. The trade was supposed to start in June. We wrote an op-ed in the journal, and now Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal, and it stopped. Well, they say they're they put it on hold. They put it on hold. Which I there's a lot of growers that are against it all over the East Coast and West Coast. But but there's there's, a certain cadre of people that are associated with the lobbyists that that benefit from this importation and exportation, the two-state, two-country deal that are very powerful in the oyster industry, and they're. uh, Apparently, they're pushing it through, and most growers are just they they're reliant upon these bigger guys for seed, so they're not they go along with it. Oh, that's an interesting thing about the industry. So these huge hatcheries that provide you your, your yeah. seed to start have kind of divergent interests. From, not all of them, but sometimes, but, but the ones bit, in, yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. If you and, have big a hatchery, you can sustain a loss of sixty to ninety percent because you just produce more seed. But for us, we lose in in March when we're cleaning out our juveniles and sorting them, we're losing 1%. And we really tend these things like babies to keep the mortality down. If we went from 1% mortality to 90% mortality, we would be out of business without a doubt. And other growers would be too. Yes, many because it's a growers. it's an emerging. Like Mike said, when we started, we were the only one of three, I think, oyster growers out here, two of which were old guys. And um, now there's 90 oyster growers, and I don't. The consequences of such a disease is unimaginable to most people. And what's the benefit? There's no benefit, uh, no economic benefit to bringing in uh, European oysters. Absolutely not, except to perhaps the two states, Washington and Massachusetts, that are that are allowed to export to Europe. It's totally a corrupt deal. The the offspring of uh, big growers and. Uh, and corrupt lobbyists. And um, our congressman, Zeldin, has been very supportive. Yeah. I mean, they were able to convince the USDA that an oyster is not an animal. Because the USDA's job is to ban imports of infected animals. And so the, you know, the sort of Orwellian kind of newspeak was, oh, oysters aren't animals, so we can bring in infected non-animals. It's nonsense. They're living animals. It's, it's the most heavily cultivated animal in the entire world is the oyster. What did they say it was if it wasn't an animal? A product? Product. A shell. A shell. It was a just so... It was so <laughs> nonsensical, they had to hang up the phone on us. They had to tell us they had to go to a meeting and go. Yeah. So this is the thing that... So, USDA. Yeah. <laughs> so dealing with the USDA telling you that... You're raising shells is the yeah. sort of is the worst part of the job right now. Well, well I've also had PhD types telling us actually they've stopped doing that since the op-ed, but they're saying you know we import oysters from New Zealand and Australia that have this disease, so what's the big deal? You're going to get this disease anyway, so what why the, should we what stop? Kind of logic is so that? why should we stop the importation of European oysters because you're going to get the disease anyway because it's a worldwide pandemic. It just it's, you want to do as much as you can to protect you from this virus or from this pandemic. Like before, why be resigned? Only the only people that would be resigned are those that stand to that have some economic growing. benefit. No, they have a benefit. To well, them. like Professor Langdon's, like that's catastrophic. Stop it while you can. It just unreasonable to not protect your crop while you can. They would never allow a African swine disease pig into the United States, whether it was being used as a pet or, you know, yeah. for leather or, or for food. Wrapped. But they would never <laughs> they allow, allow that animal that. in, but they're going to... You can get on, online and sign our petition to stop the import of European oysters. Until Infected more research European, is done. Until more research is done. But you asked what part of the job is... Uh, you know, some things are hard. You would think they're hard, like... a 
like on a December day, December is our biggest month. It's by far our biggest month. Christmas is the absolute best time to eat a uh, New York oyster. You know, there is as plump as they're going to go into hibernation by Christmas. And so uh, they're as plump as they're ever going to be. So we've got to harvest those at low tide. So if low tide is at four in the morning, you got to be out there at, you know, 3.30 to go out there and harvest these. You got to get a wetsuit on. And uh, the moon's out, the sun's not, right? And you're the, harvest, the whole idea of the harvest moon takes on a new meaning. But I have to tell you, you would think that would be an awfully rigorous and awful experience. But I come in and I take a hot shower and strip off that wetsuit and I just feel great. I feel like I've done something great. It's a good feeling. You would think it's awful, but it's not. When you're harvesting them, are you just opening the cages and emptying them into the sorter or how does that work? Uh, uh, by hand. By do hand. the last step by hand. Which, what, so, most people are appalled, like the Europeans. They have so much machinery. They're like, you yeah. sort by hand. So take me through the harvest. Yeah. How does that work? Take them off the line. We put them on a raft, drag them over to the dock. That takes us about a half an hour to get roughly 3,000 oysters to the dock. And then we'll uh, put them on the dock, dump them on the table, and sort them by size. Because we know our customers intimately, and we know what size oyster each guy likes. Unfortunately, there is a distribution and we're growing different sizes for different people. And you just go one oyster at a time through 3,000? Eyeball it. How long does that take? Hours. Hours. Just standing there? Yep. Yep. Even in December? Well, we put uh, my son rigged well, that's up. that's another thing. The DEC won't let us build a shelter. And I'm like, we're the everybody else in the world can work in a sheltered environment, right? Yeah. Oyster farmer can't build a cover and a sides to their dock because it's yes. cast a shadow or something. You would think build. that's a conflict with OSHA, but would they demand that we work in an open Yeah, OSHA says we have to have a cover, and DEC says we can't because of shade. And it's, when you ask them, they look kind of embarrassed. Bureaucracy is, is amazing <laughs> in this industry. It's amazingly... So you have to stand And up. they're amazingly powerful. Yeah. You can't... I mean, well, I mean, when it's really bad, we'll bring the oysters back and work, you know... Oh, if uh, the wind is blowing, yeah. But, I mean, that's more time and effort to haul stuff. But more. they won't let us build a permanent enclosure out there. Yeah. Because so we to... wanted to build a dome, like, you know, a geodesic dome would have looked really nice and been hurricane-resistant, hopefully. Yeah, but, a dome um, is the yeah, most yeah. hurricane-resistant shape there is. And it would have been nice looking. They are like, nope, can't do that. So you have to stand out there in yep. the open and sort one at a time. You got it. Try to stay warm. Well, my son did rig up a system you could plug in your uh, phone and listen to your music. So there's a loudspeaker system. Yeah. <laughs> you got to. Yeah, you got to. And it keeps us warm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else about the oyster farming business that you think listeners should know? People should know that oyster cultivation is the most sustainable of all aquaculture and probably agriculture. Oysters don't take anything from the environment except algae, which is in an abundant supply. And actually in most bays, it's, uh, it's in oversupply. So they're filtering the water of excess algae. And at the same time, as a byproduct, we are providing habitat for small fish fry. I mean, basically, what we built is an artificial reef out here, an oyster reef. And the reef is the most, uh, you know, it's, it's the place where fish are attracted. That way, in between the interstices between the shells of oysters is where little fish hide from big fish. And so there's full of fish out here. I mean, when we lift up a cage... The bottom of our boat is full of young fry fish that we have to wash overboard because we've provided a habitat for fish. Well, like the chef at the Greek restaurant, George, he told us that he thinks that the fishing in Peconic Bay is particularly good. And he thinks it's because of the oysters. I've had several people tell us that the fish have come back in this area and they think it's because of the oysters. Yeah, he's been diving here his whole life. He's lived here his whole life. 
and he's been diving in the sound and the sound used to be much cleaner than the bay yeah. now the sound is dirty and the bay is full, full of, of life full of fish we we we're one of our chefs anita Lowe, she loves to come fishing here and we are ourselves surprised at the variety and amount of fish that we can pull in you know 500 feet from our oysters just what are we weak fish fluke Blackfish. Blackfish, sea robins, bass, you name it. Everything is right there, right behind the oysters. The oysters really give back to the community and, and the, the water. And the quality of the nutrition is unmatched. If you're going to eat animal protein, oyster meat is the healthiest of all animal proteins. It has all the metals because it's from the seawater. You know, six oysters provide you with a week's worth of zinc, magnesium, copper, iron. Uh, there's more calcium than milk. There's no fat in, you know, there's no carbohydrate. Yeah, he's, he's 100 years old. Yeah, I'm, I'm out there. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm out there. On a Dece- I don't know why I'm out there on a December day, you know, but I'm out there. And uh, it is it is really healthy. Guys, thank you for having me out here. And thank you for letting me try some of the some of the oysters. The Widow's Hole Oysters. They're delicious. <laughs> that is it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you slurped it down with a tasty mignonette. I don't know what I'm saying here, but I'm going to keep going at it. <laughs> I hope you slurped down our podcast. If you did and you liked it, you can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. If you didn't, or you have comments, or just questions about this outro, send me an email at workingatslate.com. The producer on this show is Jessamine Molly, who uh, would like to actually, she has a special thank you. Usually I give a special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music, which I've just covered, but she also has a special thank you to Teddy, the Osinski's very adorable, oh, is he a, a French bulldog? Yeah, a tiny, he, he, we, when we got to the dock to come see them, this, this French bulldog barreled our way. I thought it was going to slide off into the water. I swear to God, it was so, so enthusiastic. Anyway, the pupper was adorable. Special thank you for that greeting, and uh, catch us next time. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.